Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. On this track of uh, of learning from the, the past and kind of studying the masters in history, do you hear a lot of newer music in big band that uh, feels like it could benefit from, you know, a little more of that study? Oh, yeah. I think that there's a double standard in music education where... <laughs> If you study classical composition, you're encouraged to go back to the beginnings of polyphony or even, you know, wig out mm. with neumes and Gregorian chant. But at least you go back to Monteverdi or before that and you study everything that's happened up till now. And now we live in this postmodern mm. age, whereas 60, 70 years ago, there was a pressure to be mm-hmm. a, a serial composer and follow Schoenberg and Albenberg and that kind of thing. And and now we mm-hmm. live in this postmodern age where you could almost select the aesthetic of any era and build upon that in your music. Mm-hmm. There's, it's fine to write a melody now, classical music. Uh, but in jazz, it seems like there are two camps of people, ones that will embrace everything and then just do what they do. Like Darcy James argues exciting because right. he's a, pretty much a scholar of the whole history of it. It's all of that DNA and information is in his sound. And what he chooses mm-hmm. to do, if yep. he chooses to write an odd meter groove, it's because the groove feels good, not because he's trying to write some science project music. And he right. writes melodies. Right. And his stuff is very exciting. Yes. It actually reminds me a lot of uh, some of the later Oliver Nelson experiments with electronics, like Skull Sessions. And mm. uh, the composer uh, Gil Malay, who had been a baritone saxophone player and then started writing a lot of TV music. And film scores, there was a score that he wrote (laughs) for a picture called The President's Plane is Missing. Oh, I always... That's Gil Malay. He did some Columbo episodes. That bass line in 11. Oh, yeah, some of this. Pat Williams did a very good Columbo episode. Yeah, right, that's something like... Darcy has a lot of that in there, too. And it's sort of like that stuff, but with some more contemporary language. In there, so I feel like his stuff is very organic. But there are composers that call themselves jazz composers now that really don't—they're not familiar with the continuum. Maybe they'll go back to hmm. Thad Jones or Gil Evans, but you know, not much before that. They're not scholars of it the way that their right. classical counterparts sure. would be. Um, so there is some of that, and. Um, but, you know, they're serious about music and they mean every note of it. And one day they'll say, oh, maybe, uh, you know, I'll study some older stuff or, you know, see where this comes, see where my influences come from. Right. Well, that's, it's an interesting point because, you know, I feel like for some reason, apart from the wonderful, you know, essentially Ellington competition that now exists, thank goodness, I feel like Ellington's music is one of the ones that's more quickly forgotten in jazz ensembles, uh, in high schools, and those who study, even those who study jazz in college, Ellington is somewhat left behind for uh, primarily, I think, Basie and Thad, um, which is with, uh, who are wonderful, don't get me wrong, but I don't know if you thought about why that might be or... Uh, oh, I know exactly why that is. Okay. Because with uh, Thad Jones and uh, Count Basie and Brooke Meyer and even, yeah. you know, things like you know, Sammy Nastico or uh, Don mm-hmm. um, Menza, you know, yeah. uh, Mincer, is that the notes are on the page. And there's not a mm. lot of, uh, I mean, you know, Count Basie could only sound like Count Basie if you play it right. And you have to have the right sounding rhythm section. But even without that, it still sounds good. You don't have to be... In order mm-hmm, to play Duke Ellington, mm-hmm. the clarinet player has to know the language of that, you know, Russell Prokop or Jimmy Hamilton or whatever type obligato. Yeah. And you have to have plunger players that know what that language is. And, and everybody has to sort of be able to play like their predecessor without really being a clone of them. 
the way Duke Ellington's own band would be. Right. I mean, after Ricky Sam Nanton, he had, you know, Booty Wood and, and uh, Butter Jackson. And then, you know, then he was without a plunger trombone player eventually. And Lawrence Brown came back to the band and never had been the plunger soloist. And suddenly he's the plunger soloist. Because somebody had to do that <laughs> that understood what it was. You know, when Johnny Hodges wasn't there, they had uh, briefly uh, Willie Smith, and then Hodges came back, and then he died, but they got Norris Turney, you know, who understood, he didn't, wasn't a Johnny Hodges clone, but he played in that, quote, bag, so Duke could write for that mm -hmm. character. But it just doesn't work when people don't understand what that language is. And Lincoln Center was able to do it because right. even though Wes Anderson played like Wes Anderson and Sherman Irby plays like Sherman Irby, they could play Blood Count in their own voice, but still with the, uh, the vibe that would make the piece work. That makes right. any sense. Going back to yeah. your metaphor of the character in the script. Exactly. And, and, and most college bands, they don't have them. I mean, you know, you can have great players that are technical uh, technically competent musicians that could read and blend and play in tune and all that. And it's just easier for uh, college and high school band directors to play a Neil Hefty stock or a Bob sure. Minter chart or something like that where they, uh, they understand what that is. So that's probably yep. Yep. why Ellington is uh, less popular with the, uh, the university and high school jazz crowd. I right. think this is just my opinion. Mm. I, I mean, it could be no, for other reasons, but I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And to your point about the writers who don't go back far enough and study, I think it's because that the, that music isn't being played and performed. There's there's a missing gap in the history because there are some people like I wasn't really aware of Duke Ellington until I got to college. Um, of course, I'd heard like his tunes in the real book and 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 you know uh, you know played them on gig or whatever but i hadn't really checked it out until thankfully we had the repertory ensemble and we did some of his music then but it was uh i think you're totally spot on it's it's an acquired bag where the players need to have all these skills and know how to read the script right well i also have to add to that that it's it, going back farther or not necessarily farther than duke ellington but to explore things that happened before the swing era was not something that was covered at Manhattan School of Music when I was there. Mm. I mean, we did play Ellington mm -hmm. transcriptions because David Berger was a faculty member. But <clears throat> um, most of everybody's musical or jazz history education started with Charlie Parker. So other than the, you know, okay, people know Coleman Hawkins' Body and Soul and they know some Lester Young. Mm-hmm. It was jazz education seemed to be built on bebop and beyond, and uh, even when I was studying with Berger uh, about Duke Ellington, there were things that I really didn't know about. I didn't know about Paul Whiteman and Gene Goldcat hmm. and arrangers like Bill Chalice, and I didn't really know anything about Big Spiderbeck and Frank Trumbauer and and uh, that pre-swing stuff which I didn't discover really until I started playing with Vince Giordano's band in the late 90s. Hmm. Like, wow. Sure. You know, like Bill Chalice's arrangement of Sugar, not the Stanley Turrentine, but the old, no. what is it, Sugar Gallimine. It's like Strayhorn 10 years before Strayhorn. Hmm. Stuff that he's getting into there. Wow. Ridiculous, you know. And if you could read, the, you know, if you listen through kind of the what we would consider corny today, the way they would play vibrato and time, that stuff is very modern. Oh, and wow. Borderline avant-garde, really. Interesting. And that's sort of how I feel about listening to early Ellington, where even the soloist, there's no vocabulary yet. There's uh -huh. no licks that you can cop. Everybody is playing really in the moment. It's very exciting to listen to the black and tan fantasy from 1927. You know what I mean? Right. Wow. It's so fresh, and nothing is done by rote. Hmm. Right. Like we don't have our digital patterns and bebop vocabulary set in yet. Yeah, that's oh. something I'm struggling with with my own playing. Because huh. I think my, my saxophone playing, particularly my tenor playing, sort of is built on you know bebop and Sonny Stitt and Johnny Griffin and that kind mm -hmm, of vocabulary. Mm -hmm. But there are a few players that are 
completely beyond vocabulary. Coleman Hawkins is a perfect example of somebody. There's a guy that played with Fletcher Henderson's band, and then he plays with Monk and plays something like off minor, and he's playing the tune, you know. Yeah. He's making music on that thing because he's not hung up by practice room stuff. Right. You know, and Charlie Rouse can play that stuff without relying on anything that's practiced. And you can really name on one hand, even if we're just talking about saxophone players, mm. that play what what I call almost vocabulary-free. They're completely in the moment. Huh. Like Lee Konitz wow. is kind of like that. And I think Perez was like that. I think Yusuf Latif and uh, mm. Roland Kirk, you know, they, they were really like that. They, they could just make music. Uh, what about... Paul Gonzalez feels like that to me, where he just feels like he's just gliding on top of the, the changes. Yeah, I think so. And the the trumpet version of that would be Clark Terry, probably. Mm. You know, he doesn't have to change how he plays, and he could play with anybody from Monk to Duke. Yeah. And Paul is like that, and uh, Lockjaw maybe is a little bit more specific, but Lockjaw, I think, and Paul Gonzalez are kind of related in sure, a certain way. Sure. You know, Lockjaw is like Paul Gonzalez backwards or something, you know? Huh, yeah. And uh, Plas Johnson has a lot of that Paul Gonzalez stuff in his playing, too. Definitely. So um, one thing that we wanted to ask you about also, in addition to this jazz uh, playing and writing, is um, your work with the media and uh, sort of scoring to picture. Can you maybe explain a little bit about how you got into that and kind of what it's been like? Well, I always wanted to do that, and um, that was as a child with my love of the original Star Trek. And in, in, well, you know, yes. in those days, they they uh, didn't have to score every episode. So mm, in uh. the '60s, the union contract would say that, well, okay, we got 26 episodes a season, and you only have to score, you know, seven hours of music, and after that, you can repeat anything. So therefore. Mm. Uh, you know, and then you would have to do that every season. So every season of that show, which ran three seasons, would have a new score for maybe six or seven episodes. They right. would record some library cues, and then the music editor would track in cues from the scored episode into all the other ones. Mm. So when that was in syndication when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, you can go through all 79 episodes in a few weeks, and pretty soon the music cues became just as familiar as the dialogue and the storyline, the whole thing. Yeah, sure. Um, and I saw how that worked, how you know, music could support the picture and music could support the drama. Mm -hmm. And then there were other movies, you know, James Bond movies, that are those great John Barry scores. And, um, yep. um, of course, you know, Star Wars and Jaws and, and uh, that sort of stuff. So I became very aware of music for picture, and I decided, oh, this is something I would really love to do. Hmm. And at Manhattan School of Music, Ed Green taught a, a film scoring class. Hmm. And we had Ray Wright's book on that, by the way, called On the Track, textbook. And, uh, oh, this is definitely something I want to do. And, and my uncle, Mitch, who had been you know, the classical composer, was now making his living scoring television commercials. Okay. And I would go to sessions and sometimes even play on them. And um, I thought, well, maybe I can do that also. And he would give me, you know, videotapes and say, hey, you know, write music for this. And he'd critique it. And uh, I just sort of fell into it in, um, uh, when would it been? in the early aughts. An old friend of mine who had been a jazz saxophone player named Peter Nichelle had... Uh, started a company that was dedicated at that time mostly to television uh, commercials. And then later he got into scoring episodic television and feature films. Mm. Well, there you go. So I was working for him as a composer on television commercials. And then when he got a TV series or a film, I would work for him as an orchestrator and conductor. Great. And uh, I got one of his sloppy seconds where there was a feature film that he didn't want to do for whatever reason and recommended me, and uh, I was hired to do it. And uh, so that was my first feature film score. Fantastic. And, uh, that would have been like, you know, 13 years ago, something like that. Wow. wow. And some documentaries and, you know, ghostwriting cues for those guys when they had two, one year we had two television series that Pete was scoring. Mm. 
for ABC, and they only lasted a year. So then we decided that ABC stood for already been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> but one of them was the American remake of the BBC series Life on Mars. Okay. Which essentially was like a 70s cop show. Sure. And Pete would compose a track that sort of sounded like a 70s Lalo Schifrin kind of vibe. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, I would actually take his track and the picture and open it up in Sibelius and just start writing wind parts. Okay. Mute, a lot of muted brass or, you know, a lot of brass and woodwinds. And then we would, uh, I would, <laughs> you know, sometimes email players in different places their, the track and the Sibelius file or the, the PDF of the part. Hmm. And somebody would mow down four, three or four trumpet parts and somebody somewhere else would play the French horn parts. And wow. my old roommate, Andrew Williams, he would play um, trombone, tenor trombone and bass trombone and tuba if we wanted it. Hmm. Old-fashioned sweetening. And Yeah, right, exactly. And I'd play the woodwind parts. And every once in a while, we would have to do a session if we needed a string section for something yeah. or whatever. Um, and then there was another show we did then called Dirty Sexy Money, and that had much less in the way of wins, mm. but uh, once in a while we would have to do session for that. So that was that was just like uh, you know a, a tornado coming at you because you know you get the stuff, and then the air date would be you know Saturday, and now it's you know Wednesday, and you got to have the <laughs> oh stuff recorded goodness. and posted and striped. It was insane. Oh wow. gosh, so. I got to So I, there's a lot of great jazz composers out there who could never do that in a million years. No. Because, you know, like, it, you know, a lot of the, there's some people who, on, who listen to our program who are film composer guys, but for the guys who are jazz guys or maybe even classical guys trying to really learn how to read a film and, and, and connect with the emotion of it, what, what is your advice and, and how did you, go about doing it other than of course watching and and listening well i have no advice only because the, the industry keeps changing what the aesthetic mm. is and i think i'm mm. probably uh coming from the older school of thought where i mean i actually like melodies yeah, yeah. Uh, really which is not really popular <laughs> in a lot of contemporary scoring yeah and it's all um lips. and you know so yeah the, the aesthetic is different i mean if you're working for Seth MacFarlane, then, oh, yeah, like write a real score. Like, the best music on television now is for his show, The Orville. Yeah, I've been watching that with my wife, and we've... Uh, actually, one of the reasons I think that I, I love it so much is because the music is incredible. It is, and they they sound like Jerry Goldsmith scores or something. Joel yeah. McNeely, who's, I don't think, related to Jim. Joel McNeely and uh, John Debney, I think, are doing... Uh, maybe Bruce Broughton, I think, are doing those scores. And they're like proper movie scores, proper film scores with a good size, you know, it's like an 80-piece orchestra and recorded, you know, at Fox with, you know, local 47 AFM musicians. It's not like sure, we're yeah. going to do this in used Karastan with, you know, eight-year-olds and a cello, but it's right. real <laughs> professionals on a union contract. It's great. Um, just while we're on the subject of Seth MacFarlane, um, it seems, now, I don't know, you know, how well you know him, but... I've never met him. Okay. It seems like he's kind of got a taste for some old-school film music and jazz because Family Guy always had that really incredible writing and scoring, and so does his new show. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you know anything about that? Oh, yes. In fact, I had drinks with Ron Jones, who had done Family Guy for quite a while, and... Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, he's into, you know, old crooners like, you know, Frank Sinatra, and he likes big band music, and he likes uh, symphony orchestras and, and uh, big scores. And, um, you know, Ron, I think Ron Jones told me that he had something weird in his contract where he got to have a bigger orchestra every season on Family Guy to the point where, you know, they would do episodes with 100 musicians sometimes. Wow. <laughs> you know? And the That's network insane. was upset, like, this is costing us a mint. It's like, check it, read your contract. Wow, hey. you know, <laughs> I love it. You know, and if you I love it, and, and I'm allowed to make it as big as I want. So if you don't shut up, I'm going to hire 73 viola players next week. You know, huh. so, <laughs> <kind of> that. <laughs> so yeah, he's he's really uh, serious about music for his productions, whether it be 
his feature films or television series. Uh, what they're doing now on the Orville is particularly good. That's some quality scoring. Huh. Yeah, it's really refreshing. So I guess to to then to amend my question, I yeah I can I can see how it would be you know this more contemporary style is is different, but say an older uh, you know a style where it melody driven I should say. By the way, and perhaps. that can be contemporary. It's just that people that of are course. in the production, you know, in in uh, in that business, people seem to know. That you know, their job plus music. So they have their own ideas. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, with digital check technology, we can have unlimited tracks practically, uh -huh. Pro Tools. So in right. the old days when you did a dub of a film or a television show, and we, oh, you know, we can only have eight tracks of audio for the sound effects, but now they can have, you know, 75 tracks of sound effects. So, well, don't let the orchestra get too big because it'll distract from this car crash sound or the glass breaking or uh, right exactly whatever it is so there's a lot of competition for space in the sound field uh, you know? uh. so that may have something to do with changing tastes but for some reason just melodies feel old-fashioned uh to film right people film intelligent people and they also think that horns and woodwinds feel old-fashioned because sure. you know in the 60s and 70s where the union contract would you know, probably top out at under 30 players in order to get a bigger sound composer we use more brass and woodwinds. Right. So that seems to be a style that they associate with 60s and 70s television because when someone hears a trumpet with a harmon mute, they think that they're, uh, you know, listening to a Twilight Zone. Right. So, so strings are very mm -hmm. transparent sounding, particularly muted strings. Those strings and electronic ambiences, these hybrid things that, are not necessarily new. I mean, this Thomas Newman is great at that. Mm. He's been doing it a long time. But mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. you know, the thing that uh, people associate as maybe some directors as contemporary versus a melody played on an English horn with a harp. Right, right. But it doesn't mean that can't be modern contemporary music, you know. A, a sound rather than, um, you know, understanding the function of... Sure. But if something really supports the picture or supports the drama, then it works. But sometimes you'll have filmmakers that say, well, listen, I don't want the music to comment on what we're seeing. And we want it to be neutral without emotion. Right. Let the dialogue, let the visual uh, tell a story, and we're not going to lead the witness, if you know what sure. I mean. The, uh, the, the viewer gets to make up their own mind about what they feel without having hard-on-the-sleeve moment. Right. The way uh, film music traditionally was, especially if you go back to, like, the Max Steiner and Hugo Friedhofer era of the 40s, where well and make you feel the right. same way. Right, sure. And that aesthetic, you know, tr translated to television in the 60s and 70s and 80s. There, yeah, the, the yeah. music was as, was, a story, was as much of a storyteller as anyone else on the screen. Uh, but you know what? There were a lot of jazz composers that got into doing television and film, particularly in the 60s. Mm. Um, you know, at Fox, uh, Lionel Newman was head of Fox Television, and he was keen on on jazz and jazz composers, and, and he was friends with Earl Hagen, and uh, Earl knew uh, Benny Carter, oh, and Benny Carter started doing film and TV, mm. and that's when uh, people like Benny Golson and Oliver Nelson and J.J. Johnson and... Yeah, they came out to L.A. and started doing television. J.J. Uh, and Oliver Nelson were working at Universal, Six Million Dollar Man, that mm. kind of stuff. And um, Benny Golson was working at Fox, and he had done like the Partridge Family and incidental music on Mash. Mm. And uh, Johnny Mandel was already out there. A beautiful score for the Sandpiper. And if people don't know that, you got to watch even just the opening main title sequence of the Sandpiper. With hmm. Jack Sheldon playing The Shadow of Your Smile oh. over this beautiful, lush Johnny Mandel arrangement. That was Jack Sheldon? Yeah. Wow. That's uh, uh, the same Jack Sheldon in the Singers Unlimited? No, no. This was Jack Sheldon, who was a trump jazz trumpet player and oh. an actor. Uh -oh, and he said he's best known for our generation as being the guy that sang... Uh, um, 
you know, I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a this bill. Guy. Oh, and I'm sitting yes, here. Yes, yes, cool yes. That's Jack Sheldon. And he I'm, was in the house band on the Merv Griffin show. Ah, uh, um, okay. I'm getting, of course, of course. I can't believe I mixed that <laughs> he, up. He had his oh. own sitcom. I, I don't think it lasted really? long, but he had his own sitcom called Run, Buddy, Run. You got to find it on YouTube. I think huh. he's in his ta- in a towel for the entire episode. Huh. No but kidding. Jack Sheldon's a great singer and, and, and trumpet player. Uh, so, yeah, he plays that for um, Sandpiper. That's where the Shadow Your Smile comes from. Beautiful arrangement. Huh. Right, right. Yeah. And who else was doing the jazz guys? Lalo Schifrin, he was at Paramount. Uh-huh. Uh, ended up doing, um, you know, things like Mannix and the Mission Impossible and then doing features. And I think he worked for uh, Clint Eastwood quite a bit. Um, Lenny Niehaus, who was an old army oh, buddy yeah. of uh, Clint Eastwood, he scored some movies out there. He did a lot of There's writing a, for the Kenton Band too, right? I think so. And there was a oh uh, speaking of Kenton being there, Pete Rugolo. He did the theme of for uh, for uh, oh, what's that show? Uh, Leave it to Beaver. It was Pete Rugolo. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Uh, Kenyon Hopkins. There's an arranger no one remembers, and he music supervisor on the Odd Couple. Neil oh. Hefty. Uh, Neil Hefty yeah. did the, of course the theme to Batman, and I think of the course. sheet music actually reads "Word and Music" by Neil Hefty. Okay, sure. Yeah, sure. Words, and, you, know, <laughs> you know, Nelson Riddle and Billy May, you know, they were doing stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and now, of course, we have uh, Terrence Blanchard, who, if you haven't heard the score yeah. for Black Klansman, go and see that picture. Oh, yeah. I loved that picture. That was a great, really worked well, the music and the story. And there were jazz scores by other people. Oh, Michel Legrand. Of oh, course, of he course. did more uh, classical stuff also. I mean, he did mm-hmm. that James Bond movie, but he also yeah. did Ice Station Zebra, huh. science fiction movie that takes place on a submarine. I think it's 1970. And the movie, I think it's like three-hour movie, and there's an overture that plays before the main title sequence. And halfway through the mi- movie, there's an uh, an an intermission with on-track music. It's wall-to-wall music. Hmm. And wow. the Academy Award went to uh, Butch and Sundance for Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. But this is a tour de force by Michel Legrand. Wow. Good grief. Wow. That's almost unheard of to go all the way through. <laughs> yeah, it was great, you know. Uh, so, yeah, there were jazz guys that were doing it or other people, you know, Henry Mancini, of course. Sure, of And course. Um, there was uh, Gil Millet, who I mentioned before. Um, and then uh, a guy called Jerry Fielding, hmm. who had done a lot of television. Uh, he had been in some of the big bands back in the day or even, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Frank Duvall, who had, you know, done like the theme for My Three Sons and the Brady Bunch, but he wrote a very serious classical sounding score for Flight of the Phoenix Hmm. picture. And he had played saxophone and clarinet in the Horace Height Band in the 30s, you know. And then middle-aged people are familiar with him being Happy Kind, the band leader on Fernwood Tonight. Oh. I'm just blown away by your level of knowledge. It's encyclopedic. Uh, it's a lot of useless information, but <laughs> it's useful <laughs> but to it's, us. It's really useful. Are you kidding me? It's 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 fascinating. I'm just I'm blown away. I me too. Uh, and all these people that you're talking about, that many of whom you know personally, um, heroes of ours, and then some other people who I've just never heard of, and I'm like, okay, I have homework to do now. This is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I feel like we could go on for hours. Um, well, we probably could, but if I want to summarize something and circle back to something I was telling you before about when I was in my 20s, I was trying to reverse engineer Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. Yeah. Um, after that, I had sort of let that not exactly run out of my system. Well, I was also copying a lot of stuff that Winton was doing. I fell in love with his small group writing mm-hmm. from that septet record he did called Blue Interlude. And then he did Blood on the Fields. And I was like, okay, this is long extended concert work in the sort of tradition of Duke Ellington, but he's using some different vocabulary here, but following that, you know, right for the band kind of thing. 
Uh, so, of course, I love his music. But sometimes you just want to tap your foot and smile and that ear candy thing. And yeah. a friend of mine gave me an album that he bought at a used record store. And uh, it was called uh, Here Comes the Swing and Mr. Wilkins, an Ernie Wilkins record recorded in 1959 on Everest Records with mostly people from the Basie band at the time. But uh, Charlie Persips on drums, Ed Jones, Freddie Green, and uh, Nat P- no, Jimmy Jones on piano. And uh, Marshall Royals playing lead alto. And uh, I think uh, Paul Gonzalez and Benny Golson and Charlie Folks and mm. people like that. And, you know, it's like Snooky and Ernie Royal and um, Richard Williams and Clark, you know, people like that. And then he makes another record after that uh, the next year uh, with a similar, similar band. Uh, but it was interesting because I heard his arrangement of the Surrey with the Fringe on top from Oklahoma. Yeah. And I just for some reason thought, you know what? I'm going to write arrangements for the rest of the score for Oklahoma. So I transcribed Ernie's arrangement of Surrey with the Fringe on top, mm-hmm. but wrote my own verse. There's a verse to the song. Of course, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, then I did the rest of the show. Huh. People will say we're in love? Yeah. Oh, poor Judd is dead? Yep. That's my. And... I do that as plunger trombone with oh uh, clarinet. So I have Art Barron in my band, and he's like, yeah, 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 You know, like a Butter Jackson kind of a vibe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I have uh, the Farmer and the Cowman. Farmer and the Cowman should be friends. Right. So think of like Clark Terry playing the flugelhorn. So I got this trumpet player in New York, Brian Pareshi, who really loves Clark Terry. So he plays that on the bouncy flugelhorn. You know, that kind of thought. Uh, Dang. But oh. it's clearly in that style, you know, like Ernie and Billy Byers and that stuff and Al Cohn and Manny album. That, that's... To me, that was the language that I wanted to deal with for a while. Mm. And now I've gotten to the point where just whatever comes out, comes out. So I've assimilated all the stuff from the history of jazz to a lot of film music and a lot of classical music. I'm a big fan of everyone from William Grant Still to Elliot Carter. (laughs) There you go. Poem for Orchestra by William Grant Still is one of my favorites. Wow. And Morton Gould and and, Mm. all kinds of... Stuff. I mean, it's a wide range. So much it, music out there. It sounds yeah. like you answered the question I was going to ask. The one of the last questions I was going to ask is advice for young writers. It sounds like your resounding answer is study the history, or just listen to everything, even without studying it. If you if you have a good sense of pitch, and you you start, the more you listen to, the more you hear, and the more you know what it is by just mm. by listening, and. uh Think about developing a few little ideas. You know, Bach Brokemeyer used to have this little note cell exercise where you might take three pitches and try to extract the most out of that. You know, mm. the obvious thing is, well, you know, right, write it in retrograde and invert it and then retrograde inversion. But then what happens if we truncate it and make it two pitches? You know, what is the essence mm. of these three pitches? How are they related? Or expand it and, you know, move them around and all that stuff. And, Extract as much juice out of the the least amount of stuff because hmm. re- recycling and uh, recycling uh, and being green is very important now, you know. Yeah, and if you uh. have a piece that's, <laughs> you know, what I mean, you know, like sometimes you get to to an arrangement or a composition, and there's something in there that you love, but it's not part of this story. It's like, well, right, take it out, but don't yes. throw it away because yes. you'll use that later. Write another piece around that. Certainly. Oh yeah can't tell you how many times I've been told that and now how many times I'm telling my students that. <laughs> and I like programmatic music where you can tell a story through, but music is weird. You know, there's nothing else like it. You know, it, hmm. it takes place over time. You can't just stand back and look at it. Right. And uh, difficult to write music that is supposed to suggest or represent something else that we know. Yeah, And what's even harder is to represent something that the audience doesn't know about. Um, I'm working on a piece now, which is, I can't tell whether this is overly pretentious or not, but just another passion of mine is architecture, art and architecture. 
And I thought at one point, I would like to write a piece based on the Bauhaus movement in Germany, particularly you know, the architects that came out of that and how that ended up getting developed in America, you know. Right. You know, Walter Gropius and Mies van der Rohe came here, and then Americans like Philip Johnson and Errol Saren and sort of picked up on that. So I was talking to Sherman Irby about this concept one day, and he said, well, wait a minute, why don't you make this purely an American story? And he says, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. I said, Frank Lloyd Wright? I said, yeah, because um, he's almost like, he's an iconoclast. He's like the Duke Ellington of architecture. Right. Cre- created, at least with the, uh, the later Usonian school, this purely American style of architecture that has influences from elsewhere, but came of age here. Mm. Well, that sounds like jazz music. And, yeah. Uh, and then it occurred to me that Rudy Van Gelder's studio in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, is a Usonian building. It was designed by one of Wright's assistants, David Henkin. Oh, my really? goodness. And it opened the year that Wright died in 1959. Good grief. Well, it's a pure <laughs> Usonian structure with a poured concrete floor colored in what Wright called Cherokee red. And uh, it's got the... Uh, concrete block walls, and the wooden ceiling. It's a Usonian structure. The sound of half of the music from the middle part of the century and later comes from that room. Yeah. sound of the drums in there is the sound of the drums going into microphone reflecting off of these surfaces designed by David Henkin in the style of Frank Lloyd Wright. Wow. Holy moly. So I started writing these different pieces these uh, based upon some of the famous and less famous buildings that Wright designed. Uh, some of them are Usonian and some of them are before that, like the Unity Temple in Oak Park, Illinois, Falling Water in Pennsylvania, and Guggenheim in New York, and Jeez. that kind of stuff. Uh, Taliesin. So that's a project I'm working on now. Multi-movement piece, and I have no idea how long it's going to be <laughs> yet. That's awesome. That's that's very exciting too. Yeah, I love uh, I love architecture. I mean, I'm I'm sure I'm not uh, nearly as you know invested in it as as you are, but um, it's it's a fascinating topic, and I think there's a lot of parallels to composing music too. I think so. And Wright loved music, and he played the piano. He wasn't trained, but he would sit there and improvise on the piano. He wouldn't learn pieces as much as just kind of noodle and explore. Huh. And, you know, he he wore a pork pie hat like Lester Young. Mm, Yeah, that's beautiful. Clearly an iconoclast. And and I think there's a lot of parallels to his work that coincide with the development of of, uh, jazz in the 20th century. We'll be very excited to hear that when you complete it. Okay. We'll uh, send you scores at some point. And, uh, Great. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, we wanted to, to uh, ask you about your current projects, including the um, BMI Jazz Workshop and your upcoming record. Okay. So, uh, well, the BMI Workshop is now in its 31st season, having been started by uh, Burt Corral and Bob Brookmeyer and Manny Album mm. in, I guess, 1987. And I wanted to do it straight away, but you couldn't if you were currently enrolled in school. So I was at, at Manhattan School of Music. So for the first four years, I was out of theoretically being allowed to do the workshop. And, uh, you know, Brookmeyer told me that, you know, right there in the cafeteria at MSM. No, 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 no. You know, you study and go through school and then we'll talk, you know. So I didn't do it. Um, and then since then, uh, you know, Manny and uh, then Micah Benny were doing it. And then for a very long time, uh, Jim McNeely. And, you know, right. we have a lot of, of McNeely students who are so very gifted and, and his students are always writing very well-crafted. I don't know what he does in those lessons, but these people know what they're doing. Hmm. Um, in fact, we're doing a concert at the Juilliard School in a couple weeks called Millennials Make Their Mark. Huh. And it's uh, young composers, many of which have studied with uh, Jim at MSM and uh, with their original works with, played by the Juilliard Jazz Orchestra where uh, I'll be conducting that. Oh, cool. 
Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, we, we've been producing a lot of uh, new and interesting music in the BMI workshop. And the goal of that is to really find your own voice as a writer. Sure, sure. Uh, but I do send some people back to, well, you know what? You, you ought to check out the, this Cy Oliver thing. Yeah, you ought to check right. out this, you know, Billy Strayhorn thing or whatever, you know. You give people a little bit of homework, too. Sure, sure. So I was leading that, and uh, for the, this is my fourth year, and uh, Ted Nash was my assistant for you know or the associate director. But his touring schedule is so busy this year that I've had uh, a neighbor of mine with a very cool sounding name, Alan Ferber. Oh who, yeah, the trombone player. Um, we're gonna have jackets made. Actually, we decided that we should start a band: Andy Farber, Alan Ferber, and yeah. Alan Farnham <laughs> on piano play the music of Art Farmer. <laughs> and we're going to go on the road and opening up for us will be Howard Alden, Harry Allen, play the music of Harold Arlen. <laughs> and then it. closing the show will be Barry Harris plays Harry Barris. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's fantastic. So anyway, that's the BMI thing. And we're going to do our recital uh, June, probably the 13th. I haven't confirmed the date yet, but June 13th of 23rd. 19 in manhattan and so far uh you know we give out a commission so we have some judges and we have micah benny uh interested in being a judge hmm. and in the past we've had uh, jimmy heath and slide hampton and uh alan broadbent and Wynn marcellus and uh some young people um chris byers uh, who else did we have uh, as judges couldn't find anybody no, yeah, so yeah, <laughs> uh, like that. Yeah. So this year, I'm hoping to get people from three different generations. I would, uh, it would be great if we could get uh, Marion Evans or, or uh, Hoshiko or someone oh, like yeah. that um, involved. Oh, yeah, Darcy was with us last year too. Uh, okay, and he was That's one of the judges. Nice. He yeah. was a he was in the program at one point. I know. Yeah, a lot of great writers. Ted Nash did and Marie Schneider and uh, huh. uh, Pete, Pete McGinnis and uh, Scott Reeves, you know, and they're all well-established writers on the yeah. scene now. Uh, Rufus Reed. You know. Yeah. Talk, talk about, talk, tell us about your new record and your upcoming shows. Tours. Okay, so the new album, which will be out on Artist Share, uh, we're going to launch that pretty soon. Uh, that is uh, original music... And uh, I think I, uh, I have two arrangements on there. You know, one is a, an old standard where Catherine Russell is a guest on it. And uh, the other one is just the theme to The Odd Couple because I love that oh, okay. tune, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I wrote a couple of new kind of extended concert works huh. and then some of it is ear candy. So some of it, so it, it's a few, you know, different kind of uh, vibes on there, you know, more like 10, 12 minute thing and then a couple of like, tap your foot and smile and have a little fun. A uh, little, you know, pipe and slippers and martini time, you know. Sure. And uh, so that, f the band, well, you know, a few years ago, actually it was nearly five years ago, I think, um, we got uh, this job through Jazz at Lincoln Center and um, there's going to be a Cotton Club review as a Broadway show. And Winton and I put together this band for the show called After Midnight. Hmm. And uh, when we, it was a lot of Duke Ellington and Harold Arlen, that kind of stuff. And uh, when the show closed after about 10 months, you know, we'd been playing eight shows a week. Six, I mean, for, you know, six nights a week, eight shows for nearly a year. And, you know, the, it was starting to sound like a real band. So we got to keep this band together. Hmm. So we had gotten a couple other gigs after that. We played at the Jazz Standard in New York, and we played the Rainbow Room, and we did a record date for some singer and a TV, couple of TV commercials. What a great opportunity to play together for that long. Oh, it was great, you know. So that band was, um, you know, me and, and um, Dan Block, and then later Bill Easley uh, on tenors, and Godwin Louis and Mark Rose on altos, and... Um, Kurt Basher and the baritone and the trombones were uh, uh, Art Barron, Wayne Goodman, and uh, James Burton. And the trumpets were uh, Bruce Harris and uh, Greg Gisbert and Alfonso Gizzy. Horn. Yep, Gizzy. Alfonso Horn and James Zoller. And the rhythm section was Adam Birnbaum, Jennifer Vincent, 
Alvester Garnett and James Cirillo. Wow. So yeah. uh, we recorded this album uh, last year. Mm. Uh, a few, well, Gizzy was away. So Brian Pareshi played lead trumpet, but we had uh, Bruce Harris, James Oller, and uh, Alfonso Horn, and then the trombones were uh, Dion Tucker and Wayne Goodman and uh, Art Barron. And then I conducted, so the saxophone section was um, Paul Moraghi on the baritone. Okay. And uh, Dan Block and Lance Bryan on tenors and Godwin Louis and Mark Rose. And uh, same rhythm section, Chirillo and Adam Birnbaum, Alvester and uh, Jennifer. No, that's the thing. And uh, Catherine Russell on one tone. There you, there you go. And uh, you're re- when, it, when is it coming out? Mm. Uh, hopefully, uh, either this month or next month, we'll put it up on Artist Share to start the sort of uh, crowdfunding thing. And I'll be sharing um, photos from the recording session and scores that are on the recordings, plus other scores that I've done for large and small group. And uh, maybe... Uh, some you know discussion of what my writing process is, how that goes, and uh, and like that. Perfect. Sounds great. So for all you listeners out there, go and uh, invest in that because you're going to learn a lot. Yeah, exactly. We're we're glad we can reach our small but mighty audience, <laughs> growing oh. growing every week. <laughs> thankfully. So that's what's happening with that, and then there's the Frank Lloyd Wright project, which are hoping we're in talks. Uh, with a performing arts organization to present that next year, April of 2020. That's not officially yet, so I'm not making a real announcement about it, but um, that's in the works. Wow. And uh, what else? And you have some tour dates coming up, right? Uh, yeah. Well, it, it's, by the time people hear this, it might be too late, but the uh, this is now February of 2019 as we record this. So uh, this coming weekend... I'll be with uh, a nine-piece version of my band, a lot of Juilliard students, plus a few um, veterans. We're going to go to San Diego to play the Balboa Theater to do a performance of, uh, uh, you know, some old standards and some Duke Ellington and, and stuff like that. But it's in celebration of the life and work of Ralph Ellison, the writer Ralph Ellison. Okay. And we're featuring uh, uh, Nick Payton as our guest trumpet soloist. So Nicholas Payton and um, uh, Nona Hendricks and uh, Will Downing and a singer from New Orleans called uh, Kiana Linnell. And we'll be at the Balboa on the 17th. And then the following weekend, we're in Chicago at Symphony Hall there, which I think is the 22nd, same group. So it's called Jazz in the Key of Ellison. Wow. Mm. Uh, we're starting to book dates for the fall, so we may be coming to a city near you. There you go. Nice. Uh, fall of 2019, Jazz in the Key of Ellison. I, I think uh, it will be very uh, apropos, Aaron, to have Andy back on the show as those dates approach, because I think we we covered, uh, just we just scratched the surface of what uh, of several conversations i feel <laughs> yeah i couldn't agree more i mean uh, obviously when you're you know as invested as uh all all of us are in this topic it's it's hard to just stop you know at any point because it's like there's so much to talk about and uh yeah this has been great oh thanks gents i mean uh, uh we of course we can go on and on about our favorite recordings and our favorite arrangers and writers and composers you know. Uh, I mean, I could just say as a little tag on this that there are people that uh, are deserving of further listening that don't get enough attention anymore. Mm. One of them mm. being Claire, Claire Fisher. I can't say enough good things about Claire yes. Fisher, particularly his string writing. Um, he made like an easy listening record called America the Beautiful. That's a must own. Huh. And he did, when he was very young, like 24, 25 years old, he did a Donald Bird with strings record. Oh, I believe it was called September Afternoon. Huh. Also, um, Bill Finnegan. People forget about how good he was, and don't judge him by uh, Little Brown Jug. But check out a record by um, Warren Vachet, the great cornet player. He made a string record in Scotland with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, huh. and it's got possibly the last arrangement that Bill Finnegan wrote. On it was written in the stars. 
record, I think it's called Never Look Back. It's a beautiful arrangement. It has no rhythm section. It's just Warren on the cornet, the string section with harp, and James Chirillo playing the triangle. Oh, that's, so, that's awesome. Beautiful arrangement. And also, you know, another great string arranger who I would put in the same category, really, someone like Claire Fisher, is uh, Billy Childs. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yeah. I've been listening to a lot of his stuff recently. Like, I must tell you, I really hate the tune Send in the Clowns. And then when I heard yes. uh, Diane Reeves, Reeves sing, sing it, it. With, Billy, yeah. with Billy Childs' arrangement, I'm like, I'm in love with this. This yes. is amazing. Huh. Yeah. yeah. So good. Yeah. That record, The Awakening, is such a great one. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, Klaus Ogerman. Everybody knows that record, Amoroso with Joao Gilberto. Mm. Yeah. But what people don't know about anymore is that he made an orchestra record featuring Michael Brecker in the Cityscape. 80s called Cityscape. You know this one. Oh, ah. yeah. Come on. That's a, that's a beautiful... Rich can't let us graduate until we listen ah, to that. Okay. You know? <laughs> and, and how about this? Are you hip to Oliver Nelson, The Kennedy Dream? No. No. Ah, you got to hear that. Okay. The I'm Kennedy Dream. It's, it's big band with tuba and French horns and woodwind doubles. And uh, I think there's some strings on there. And um, even the first movement doesn't have strings. But uh, Grady's playing drums, but he's playing so loose you think it was Elvin and De Vivier. It's just ridiculous. Wow. You know, when I've, I'm sure you've heard this one, but another another one of Richie's favorites is... When you said America the Beautiful, I thought you were going to go to the Gary McFarland record, uh, an account No, of but there's, a, there's another uh, McFarland record that, that, that I love called, um, well, no, that's not called September Afternoon. It was, uh, gosh, no, I'm, I'm going to space on the name of this, but I love Gary McFarland, and there was a recording that he did with an almost big band at Webster Hall in New York, Jerry Dodgen's on it, and, mm. and Clark is on it, and... Oh, man, I wish I could remember the name of this one now. This is a good one. But yeah, I mean, Richie, yeah, any, anything by Gary McFarlane mm -hmm. left us way, way too early. Right. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. I'm going to need a weekend to process this whole thing. I'm just going to need to, like, go out into the woods and just, like, listen to all this music. <laughs> yeah, really. I'm going to need the next five years or yeah. something. <laughs> this will be one episode to come back to and, and listen. You know, to and 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 yeah, we we will definitely have to have you back on. So, um, I think I think we'll call it there and and say, okay, Andy, thank you so very much for being on the show. Um, we look forward to having you back, and uh, for all the listeners, uh, check out his music, check out his new record uh, coming out soon on Artist Share, and uh, uh, and for those in New York and in the surrounding area, check out the BMI Workshop. Aaron, anything else that I'm forgetting? Um, I think that covers it. I uh, just want to thank you again, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for sharing all of your uh, experiences, your knowledge, your advice. I mean, we're soaking it up, and I'm sure our listeners will, will love it. Great. It's been, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you, Chance. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, all of you, for listening. That was our interview with Andy Farber. We hope to do a score study on one of his charts. And so stay tuned for that and uh, all future episodes. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing and hope to see you next time.